So as we have um, many speakers and, and, and lots of important things to talk about, I'll, without further ado, I'll ask Max, Max Pensky to open this morning's proceedings. Thank you very much, and, and uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you for the invitation to be here. Um, as a, uh, I think the only philosopher here. Um, uh, it's um, it's wonderful. Uh, it's quite moving to be able to be involved in in this event and and in this second day when after all the all the the work that we heard yesterday to try to put the Brazilian case into a, a larger in this case a larger legal context. I mean, uh, I'll try to be extremely uh, brief today. Uh, th my paper uh, is very easy to summarize. Uh, it asks a single question, which is, what is the current status of domestic amnesties for international crimes, such as crimes against humanity, under the international criminal law? That's the question. The answer is, I don't know. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the reason for not knowing is the point, um, which is, you know, I, I mean, obviously, in, I'm, I'm lecturing international lawyers about international law here, which is something that only a philosopher would do, I think. But the, the, the current state uh, of play in international law with respect to amnesties is one of the more um, fascinating aspects of the development, the huge development of international criminal law over the last um, 10 or 15 years or so. And um, the paper argues that the extraordinary development in the political status of amnesties since the 1980s and 90s uh, is related to the current uh, fluid situation in international law in many, many ways. One of the um, fascinating findings of a lot of the empirical work on amnesties that's been done in the last few years by people like Louise Malander, Mark Freeman, and, and Lee Payne here is that the rise of an anti-impunity norm uh, over the past decades has actually uh, run parallel with the actual rise in the number of amnesties rather than uh, the fall in the number of amnesties. And this is this is something that I think that um, uh, in, on the order of unintended consequences that I think that we still have to wrestle with. Uh, why is it that the more amnesties seem to be discouraged by norms of international law, the more sources of international law that appear to condemn amnesties for crimes against humanity, uh, the more a norm of uh, anti-amnesty and, and impunity seems to entrench itself or crystallize, and certainly in custom, um, the more popular amnesties become. And uh, first of all, this fact deeply undermines the fact of the rise of amnesties, deeply undermines any argument that can be made that there is, in fact, uh, a customary norm uh, against amnesties that would be rooted in established state practice. This is one of the great requirements for um, customary international law. State practice has to be established. Uh, this, is, this argument cannot be made uh, in, in the contemporary scene. So first of all, uh, just a few comments on amnesties in general, because I think that although 
Um, most of us know this here. Sometimes at the beginning of a session like this, it, it's worth reminding ourselves exactly what we're talking about. Um, there's many, many, many different kinds of amnesties. And what the kind of amnesty that concerns us here in the Brazilian context is the kind of amnesty that um, attracts the most attention, not coincidentally. And that is really um, a public, um, a rather dramatic political act, uh, whether by an executive, uh, by an executive decree, or by a legislative act, or some combination thereof. Uh, some sort of public um, and usually dramatic political act that suspends what would have been the normal course of the system of domestic criminal law. Um, I say this with this much precision to circumvent a certain number of persistent misunderstandings in the study of amnesty and international criminal law. Um, in some of my earlier work, I've argued very, uh, as best I could that it is a mistake, in fact a very bad mistake, uh, to understand amnesty as threatening impunity. Because amnesties do not prevent punishment, they prevent prosecution. And one outco possible outcome of prosecution is acquittal. Uh, it is therefore a, a mistake, just simply a conceptual mistake. Um, to understand that amnesties prevent the punishment of guilty persons. Guilt, uh, uh, persons are established as guilty as the result of a conviction. And uh, there is a distinction to be drawn here between, uh, well, several distinctions to be drawn between the investigation and indictment of a person who is uh, um, to be charged with a criminal offense the conviction of such a person after a due process of law, and finally the legal sanction or punishment that would be attached to this conviction. These are different aspects of the of, uh, procedure in both uh, domestic and international criminal law. It's very important, it seems to me, that they be kept separate. Um, accountability and impunity are linked concepts, but distinct concepts, and I think that um, as we think about from the from the transitional justice perspective as we think about amnesties and prosecution I think that we often quite understandably uh, Adopt the the point of view of the prosecutor Which is to say there are people who have done terrible things They deserve to face justice their their legal nemesis for what they've done prosecution uh, presents them with their legal nemesis amnesty deprives us of that opportunity this is, of course, in some important sense, quite true. In another sense, however, um, we must bear in mind that one possibility of prosecution is acquittal. And I say this because, after all, one thing, one of the strongest arguments uh, against amnesties is not that they deprive um, um, due uh, retribution, but that they also deprive due process. Due process consists in the, the trial irrespective of its outcome. And there's a presumption of innocence um, that has to accompany this. This is possibly, in terms of the public educational role of, of legal procedures, the most important of all to, to understand. So uh, having gotten that out of the way, I'll very briefly make the argument that, uh, uh, that I make in the paper, which is that 
if we take, as I divided up here, three different aspects of contemporary international criminal law, in none of those three cases is there a definitive um, position about the legality of domestic amnesties or the, the status of such amnesties. In international treaty law, uh, many commentators before myself have remarked on the remark on the fact that there is no um, document of international treaties that bars amnesties or, uh, or that uses the word amnesties as a way of, of barring them or, uh, or of declaring their incompatibility with international law. In fact, the only mention of the word amnesty in international treaty law uh, it, it encourages amnesties at the end of hostilities. Um, there are numerous reasons why um, the, the word amnesty uh, would not appear uh, in the language of international treaty law. After all, um, the, uh, if, if you look at the history of the concept of the amnesty, the, uh, the, the, the concept of amnesty uh, ar arises in treaty law anyway uh, in the early modern period as a way of um, uh, describing the terms of peace between uh, former hostile parties and international conflicts. It's usually um, connected with the idea of oblivion, so amnesty and oblivion, for example, is, a, is the language that you would find uh, in the, in the uh, preamble of the Treaty of Westphalia from 1648. Um, and, and it's this combination of amnesty and oblivion that so aggravates because of the connection, um, at least the etymological or the genealogical connection between amnesty and forgetting. Um, but of course, in treaty law, uh, of the early modern period, the forgetting, the oblivion in that that was that was um, thought of was not the oblivion that events occurred, uh, but the oblivion that um, formerly hostile parties must remain currently or future hostile parties. The, the the forgetting was a moral and political forgetting, not a factual forgetting. Nevertheless, um, amnesties in the in the modern period. Um, are probably so unpopular in international treaty law because of their, their enormous expressive power, which is to say amnesties, as, again, as a dramatic public political act, suspend what would have been the normal operation of the system of domestic uh, criminal law. That implies that whosoever decrees an amnesty not only suspends the operation and the normal operation of law, but in the process, which, you know, what, what we philosophers would call the perlocutionary effect of such a, 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 an act, expresses in a very dramatic way domestic sovereignty. And I think that very often we, we uh, in transitional justice, tend to ignore, not ignore, but tend to underestimate the enormous significance of the expressive power of amnesties. In the, simply in the, in the sense that uh, uh, somebody like Carl Schmitt would have, would have put it, um, sovereign is he who declares the exception, which is to say, whosoever can determine the exception to the law, in so doing, declares him or herself sovereign. Um, this is a kind of a sovereignty that no state would be um, happy to renounce in advance without some sort of deeply persuasive political reason about national self-interest. And I think that one of the um, uh, underlying deep explanations for the situation in which an ant a global legal anti-amnesty norm is accompanied by a rise in amnesties 
is precisely this, that the more, and I mean, this is an, a classic case of an un unintended consequence, that the more uh, visible and debated amnesties become in, ter in terms of international relations and international law. Am I speaking too quickly? Okay. The more, um, the more visible and hotly debated amnesties become in terms of international relations, um, the more tempting it is to use them domestically in order to express both internally and internationally uh, the consolidation of one's own sovereign control of government. So it's not surprising, in other words, that, uh, that uh, treaty law is so quiet uh, on outlawing sovereignty. Um, most of the arguments in treaty law that uh, support an, uh, the argument that amnesties are not compatible with international law are indirect ones. They argue that amnesties prevent investigation, indictment, prosecution, and punishment of crimes which are outlawed in international treaty language in such a way that their um, punishment is um, obligatory, their, their prosecution and punishment would be obligatory for state parties. In other words, the indirect argument would be uh, reasonably straightforward. A state party to an international treaty barring, for example, a crime against humanity is under a legal obligation um, for prevention and prosecution of such acts. Uh, prevention and prosecution of such acts are made difficult, if not impossible, by domestic amnesty. Therefore, the conclusion follows that a domestic amnesty renders a state party incapable of um, adhering to its own treaty obligations. This would not itself be an, a, a, an illegal act, but it would be an act rendering a state incapable of doing what it is more legally required to do, and therefore the conclusion would be that such amnesties are incompatible with international law as opposed to a violation of international law. Now, I mean, I run through the paper in many ways how difficult it is to make this um, argument cleanly. There are many, many, many um, counter-arguments that can be made and have been made uh, to the effect that um, uh, the incompatibility of amnesties with international law in this indirect way is not a strong enough argument to um, convince um, a state uh, to amnesty somebody if that state believes that such an amnesty is in its direct and compelling interest to do so. Uh, in terms of customary international law, uh, very briefly, I think that the argument here, there are many arguments about what customary international law is and how authoritative it is as a source of law, but leaving all those arguments aside, I think that the, that the real problem of turning to customary international law uh, 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 in this case is simply that there is no ability to establish uh, state practice and that is a, a, a necessary but insufficient condition uh, to, uh, for, for customary international law. Without state practice, all the opinions and writings and rulings of domestic and international courts are left, so to speak, hanging over a void. Um, there has been a, a great deal of discussion of what's called a crystallization. Um, this, uh, the, the, the norm 
um, barring am domestic amnesties for international law, a norm, not a law, but a norm, uh, is crystallizing, uh, which is a, a, a wonderful metaphor in many ways. Um, however, um, also not a particularly compelling one if the conclusion one wants to reach by introducing it as a premise is that amnesties are in fact contrary to international law. It is possible that such a norm is, is crystallizing. It is also possible that this is a, uh, I mean, and I hope it is, this is my own view. However, um, one of my jobs, one of, one of the things that we do as philosophers is, is really try to make one's, own, uh, one's opponent's arguments as attractive as possible. And uh, in this case, I'm afraid that the opponent's argument is reasonably attractive, which is to say, it is just as likely that what we would prefer to call to see as a crystallizing norm of international law is an artifact of a great deal of wishful thinking on the part of legal scholars, uh, academics, NGOs, and some governments. We are taking a, 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 a snapshot of a current conjuncture in the relationship between international law and international relations, which captures and freezes, crystallizes, as it were, one moment in an extraordinarily fluid and dynamic process. One interpretation of that snapshot is that we are witnessing one moment in a process of crystallization of a norm. But there are many other equally plausible interpretations. And given the very fluid and dynamic nature of the history of amnesty and international law, it is equally plausible, it seems to me, to suppose that we are capturing one swing of the pendulum of amnesties as compatible, incompatible with international law. The third source of, the, of international law that I talk about in the paper, and uh, you know, as, as everybody else here, I'm sure I, I would love to have about an hour and a half to two hours to talk to you about, uh, is the, the rulings of various uh, transnational and international courts and tribunals. Many of which, such as the, the ICTR, um, uh, in its ruling on the Lome Accord uh, from um, 2000, have, uh, I think, established uh, very important legal precedents about amnesties, uh, domestic amnesties. Uh, I think that it is now, uh, uh, if not settled precedent, then reasonably settled precedent, that international courts uh, are not bound to recognize the legitimacy of domestic amnesties under international law. Uh, in fact, one could even say that uh, the, 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 the entire principle uh, that domestic amnesties have any extraterritorial validity or legitimacy has been effectively undermined. In other words, a, a, an amnesty granted in country A uh, need not be recognized by country B or by court C or by international community D. So I think that is, in some sense, the most that one can say uh, about the status of domestic amnesties as a matter of law, which is that the, the, the many opinions that hold that these amnesties are in principle and often in practice not in conformity with existing or crystallizing international legal norms does open the, the, the possibility um, of effectively uh, reducing the practical value of domestic amnesties for no other reason than making it clear that under international law such amnesties cannot be regarded as having any extraterritorial validity. 
That is a very modest gain. That's certainly not the end of the story. Uh, we're in the middle, I think the middle, we, al we always think of ourselves as in the middle of stories, but uh, we're in the middle of a story about amnesties. There's still much, much to, to happen. However, I think that, uh, again, in conclusion, the relationship between amnesties and international law is interestingly, indeed fascinatingly, confused. So I'll end there. Thank you.